There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kerminski and myself, Colin Andrews. Notice how I changed it up there, Greg? You did. Yeah, that was. I think a lot of people are going to pick up on that. <laughs> so we're on episode two in our mini-series on the basics of investing. And last week, we reviewed the importance of asset allocation and diversification and how those two elements need to be done correctly to give yourself an opportunity to have a successful outcome. I think that's pretty straightforward. Yep, you bet. So today we're going to talk about stock picking and market timing. Now in our last episode, we talked about how asset allocation makes up something like as much as 93% of a variation of portfolio returns, Yes. right? Mm -hmm. And how everything else accounts for less than 7%. So we're going to spend 100% of today's episode talking about something that accounts for less than 7% on the variation of return. Sure. And we're going to talk about that, of course. So we're going to start with stock picking. And listen, stock picking is something that many people did for a very long time. And the purpose of it really is to identify companies to invest in that have the possibility of going up in value by more than the market as a whole. Because that's the only reason why you would do that, is if you think you could beat the market. And there's lots that think they can. True. Yeah. And probably many have, yeah. but maybe not consistently. So there's a couple of different approaches that are used to identify individual stocks, but we're going to focus primarily on what's known as fundamental analysis. And the fundamental analysis, the objective is to determine a company's intrinsic value, compare that to the current trading price of that company's shares. And if the intrinsic value is higher than the current trading price, then the company would be believed to be mispriced and undervalued and therefore should be bought. And conversely, if the intrinsic value is lower than the trading price of the shares, then they should be sold. So we talked about this in our one of our very early podcasts. Benjamin Graham is known as the father of value investing, and he literally wrote the book on fundamental analysis back in 1934, which was called Security Analysis. And he wrote a follow-up book, The Intelligent Investor, in 1948. And a lot of Graham students went on to very illustrious careers in the investment world, and those included people like Sir John Templeton, who founded Templeton Mutual Funds, and Warren Buffett. Now, if he's the father of value investing, does that mean that he named his first child value investing? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> value investing's father. <laughs> so again, we're talking about going back to the 1930s, 1940s of a fundamental analysis of stock. And His first book now has been available for almost 90 years, and tens of thousands of well-trained analysts and computer programs have utilized the techniques that he described of fundamental analysis to research essentially every significant stock or major stock that's traded on any of the world's exchanges. So the success of fundamental analysis historically was based on the fact that not many people were doing it, and therefore Graham and his disciples had information that was not broadly available to the public. So today, any potential advantage from doing this kind of analysis has largely been eliminated by virtue of 
just the dissemination of information. The internet, the World Wide Web, and there are now so many people using fundamental analysis as a way to identify stocks that essentially stock prices are now fully reflecting that. And in fact, there was a speech that Benjamin Graham made in 1963. So that's going back a few years. Yep. And I'm going to give you a quote. And the way he talks is a little bit different, but hopefully we'll get the message. He says, similarly, take the case where an individual stock is favored by one of my own fraternity of security analysis is because he is optimistic about its future earnings and general prospects. To the extent that investors generally agree this company has good future prospects to that extent, its prospects are also likely to be fully reflected and perhaps over-reflected in the market price. So what he's basically saying there is that if everybody thinks that the company is undervalued, then the price will already reflect that because people will have already been buying it and therefore there's no further opportunity, which sounds a lot like something that we talked about previously and we'll talk about more in the future, the efficient market hypothesis published by Eugene Fama back in 1965. The father of modern finance. Exactly. And we've met modern finance. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he is. (laughs) So in the same speech that Graham made that previous comment, he also identified something that a lot of people don't think about, but it's impossible for investors as a whole, and therefore the average investor, to do better than the general market. And that's just based on the fact that basically the market is the sum of all investors' portfolios, and therefore the market itself is the average. Well, and if you think back to the, when did Benjamin Graham first read that? 1934? Yes, fundamental analysis. So right in the dirty 30s, right? Yep. And information flowed a little slower in the 30s than in the 2020s. So how would people have gotten the price of their stocks they owned? I guess they'd get it from the newspaper. That's right. And it could take a long time to get that information. It would be even harder to get information that companies would publish their earnings reports and things like that. And yeah, news would move very slowly. Whereas today we get it at the one click, Yep. right? One click. So I did some clicking around on the interweb and I looked at the top returning stocks for 2021 over the last trailing 12 months. The number one performing stock isn't going to be a surprise, Greg. We've talked about it a few times on this (laughs) podcast. We probably need to stop talking about it. I think so. This will be the last time. We won't mention it again. GameStop is up over 4,000% in the trailing 12 months. That's a pretty decent return. Now, these are U.S. stocks. The stock that came in second for return in the trailing 12 months actually surprised me a great deal. It's Dillard's. Dillard's, the U.S. retailer. And I just can't understand why Dillard's stock would be up 652% over the last 12 months, other than, I guess, going into the pandemic and economic shutdown their stock would have gone down dramatically. Right. But I can't understand why it's gone up over 600% since. Maybe we'll look into that. Yeah, and there's a whole list of them. I won't get into all of them, but there's a number of brick-and-mortar stores, Abercrombie and Fitch as another one, Pitney Bowes, Neighbors Industries, Bed Bath & Beyond is up over 200% in the last 12 months. So it seems that if somebody was trying to stock pick, they would be trying to find those names. That's right, and it's one thing even for professionals who are scanning the entire list of companies that comprise the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000. For the average investor sitting at home, who has heard of L Brands? And I can tell you that nobody's called me inquiring about it. Stock's up 321%. Yeah. A Veritive Corporation up 285%. Technoglass up 280%. So these are the kind of names that 
a lot of individual investors, particularly picking their own stocks, whether they're Canadian or U.S., are likely going to miss these. Whereas, of course, an index investor likely owns most of these names, at least to some extent. Yeah, maybe a small amount, but in any event, they're there. But picking stocks is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do. It is. I mean, to pick it is easy, but to pick the one that goes up is hard. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So just for fun, when my son was eight years old, he's now turning 18. Yikes. I had him, I printed out the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the TSX 60, and I gave him a highlighter. You remember the story. I do. I like telling it. I gave him a highlighter. I said, pick 10 names from each list. Didn't tell him why. Just said, pick 10 names. And he picked names like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Nike, Disney, Walmart, Agrium, Agnico Eagle Mines, Enterplus, Suncor, TC Energy, and the Home Depot. So there's some of the names that he picked. Yep. So just for fun, I benchmarked his picks against our former firm's North American core equity portfolio, to which they've picked U.S. and Canadian stocks as well. Now, these, the people that picked that list, they have CFAs and MBAs and all kinds of designations, and their job is to pick stocks. My son, who was eight, obviously his job was not to pick stocks. No. Now, the analysts that made those picks for that former firm, they're paid lots of money to do that job, right, Kurt? I would think so. You know how much my son Kalen was paid to do his job? Not really, no. $30 a month. That's what his allowance was. That's pretty good. So I've benchmarked his performance versus this North American core portfolio. Now, in the last one-year period, I should mention, there have been no changes to this list at all. They were just picked and left alone. Buy and hold. Buy and hold. In the last one-year period... The North American Core Guided Portfolio, it returned 53%. That's pretty good. And Kalen's picks only returned 41%. So they outperformed him in the last 12 months. However, in the last three, five, and 10-year periods, his picks have far surpassed the picks of the analysts. And as we've talked about last time, one year is not really a reasonable time frame to judge performance. Right. And so now as he's turning 18, this is 10 years worth of data, The portfolio that he picked has returned 17.61% per year for 10 years. Have you increased his allowance by 17.6% a year? We've increased his allowance by 125% (laughs) over 10 years. So he's gone from $30 to maybe, I don't know, what is that, $80 or something? But nowhere near what was there. So I'm bringing this up, and I've brought this up in past presentations just because Picking stocks is hard. Now, this kid knew nothing about what he was picking. He just picked names he was familiar with and picked some he wasn't. There was no strategy involved at all. And I think the point here is not to make fun of people who pick stocks for a living or anything like that. What we're trying to do is point out how difficult it can be and how random it can be. And so there's lots of great companies out there and any research department, even a well-stocked, well rounded out research department can only cover so many stocks. And so they're going to typically use their typical basket of names with the TSX 60. Probably most of the names in there are well-researched. Of the 260 that make up the TSX composite index, probably a lot less coverage of those names. And that's just Canada. And that's just Canada. So if you talk about 3,500 stocks that trade in the U.S., there's probably tons of research analysis on the biggies the Apples, Amazons, General Motors, et cetera. Dillards. Yeah, Dillards, of course. (laughs) Um, But there probably isn't the coverage on those smaller ones because you just can't get to them. 
So again, the point is it's very difficult and there's lots of professionals trying to do it and not a huge percentage of them are successful. So let's just talk about a couple of other ways of picking stocks. So we talked about fundamental analysis. Another very significant method that we won't talk about too much right now is technical analysis. And what technical analysts do is they chart the performance of stocks or markets and they look at trend lines based on how a stock has traded. They look at moving averages or relative strength in trading and they look at different patterns, which they'll call things like candlestick patterns and formations and things. And what they're really looking for is to compare the trading patterns that a stock or a market are currently undergoing to previous times the markets have shown similar patterns. And then they make predictions based on if a stock moves through a moving average, then it's likely to keep going to another level, that kind of thing. So it's just another method of attempting to identify stocks that are going to go up or that are mispriced or have some likelihood of a particular direction. And so, again, as we talked about now, availability of information is massive. The gut feelings of stock picking of the past days are gone because there are lots of tools available and do-it-yourself investors at home have access to all the fundamental research, all the technical analysis that professionals have now. And the question is, does that help? And I think the answer continues to be, not typically. It's a bit of a gamble. So we talked about this a little bit last time. What's the alternative to picking individual stocks? Alternative is to become more diversified, either by through some sort of investment fund or just holding a massive number of shares so that you diversify away that specific risk. And it's interesting, I think we talked about this the last time, but back in, uh, when was that, 2008, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, most people know the name, and Ted Seides, who's a hedge fund manager, made this a million-dollar bet where Buffett was going to select the performance of the S&P 500, and Seides was selecting five hedge funds. And at the end of 10 years, whoever uh, won basically would win a million dollars from the other party and donate it to charity. In the end, and before the 10 years had even passed, in mid-2017, Seides uh, conceded defeat. The hedge funds returned 22%, and the S&P 500 index returned 85.5%. And arguably, hedge fund managers are among the best because they have uh, full ability to invest in a variety of different strategies, and they charge fees of up to 20% on performance and things like that. Well, they're the best at charging fees, that's for exactly. sure. Anyway, so that's just basically what happened in that particular case and just highlight some of the risks. And again, some of the other risks of stock picking is you can get overly concentrated in one stock or sector, as we talked about last episode. It's the whole get rich versus lose everything risk. And again, the time cost. And this is something that I want to just spend a minute on. There's a time cost of being wrong in a portfolio. So let's say we use the stock market average, whether the TSX Composite Index or the S&P 500, as our benchmark. So if you uh, have a small stock portfolio, and if you happen to have what the author of this particular paper called a torpedo stock, the impact of those torpedo stocks, which is the name would suggest the stocks blow up, the impact on a concentrated portfolio can be fairly strong or fairly heavy. If you only have 10 stocks and one of them blows up, that affects 10% of your portfolio. And that could happen in a year when the stock market is doing just fine. Well, that underperformance, it's not just a dollar value in your portfolio. Actually, it could take you years to catch back up to where you would have been had you just been 
in a diversified portfolio reflecting the stock index. You have to do better than the stock market index for several years in a row just to catch up to where you would have been. So that concept of a torpedo stock or making a big mistake can have a real time impact on your portfolio. And when we think about portfolios as being basically just a tool for investors to achieve their financial goals, such as retirement or something else, that can put a real delay into achieving those goals by just having one blow up. So what do people do about it? Well, I guess the only thing you can do about it is try to avoid that by having a well-diversified stock portfolio and focusing on some of the things that you can control. You can control the asset mix, as we talked about last time. You can control the diversification, avoid over-concentration, and look at all the possible ways to diversify that might actually allow you to have access to some of those factors of higher future returns. So for all of those people that say, well, I don't want to just do as well as the market. I'd like to beat the market. There are a couple of ways that have been identified that might help you do that, and they just don't involve picking individual stocks. So those are the factors of return that we're going to get into in another episode. So we won't spend any time on that today. So basically, what are we saying? That picking stocks is hard. Like it's hard to be right over and over and over again. You can be right once and it could be lucky, or you could be right because you actually were right, but then to do it over and over again is pretty difficult. Yeah. And and we're not here to tell people they shouldn't try to pick stocks. And in all fairness, probably most advisors, even if they don't recommend picking stocks, most advisors and most people have one or two individual stocks in their portfolio because it's fun. It's fun. And they appeal to some aspects. So if somebody has a real strong feeling about environmental issues, then they might choose to invest in a clean energy ETF or stock or something like that. Yeah, And that's something that it feels right. But as long as it's not too huge a part of the portfolio so that it could derail your plans, if it doesn't work out, I think that's the secret. We talk about this as a zero-sum game. And really, when it comes right down to it, if you believe a stock is undervalued and you're going to buy it, the stock market is an auction market. And in order for you to buy the stock, somebody else has to be willing to sell it. And what that means is that person obviously would have a view that the stock perhaps is overvalued and should be sold. And so here you've got two people with exactly opposing views executing a trade. Yeah. And one of them might be right, <laughs> but uh, yeah. they can't both be right. Now you talk about zero sum game and we've talked about before, it's actually a negative sum game because that doesn't include the fees exactly. to do those transactions. Yeah. So exactly. whether you're the buyer or the seller. Right on. All right. Well, listen, that's stock picking. We're not here to slag it. We're just saying it's difficult. The next part is market timing. Market timing is just as difficult as stock picking, I would say, Greg. Yep. So before we get into it, I wanted to talk about an article in Forbes now back in March of 2020. So just at the beginning of the pandemic, they identified six reasons market timing is for suckers. These are their words, not ours. Right. Number one, we always think we can do this successfully. Makes sense. Everybody thinks that they know when to get in and when to get out. Number two, you don't have an edge against the pros. So this has been removed by things like program trading, flash trading, algorithmic trading, things of that nature. Yep. Number three, you need to be right a lot. They're not one-time trades. Like you actually have to continually be right. So if you're market timing to get into a market or get out of a market, well, actually it's kind of the same thing, right? You got to be right when to get in, right when to get out. Yep. If you write what to sell or write what to buy, like there's multiple reasons to be right or multiple times to be right. Number four is you need to be a full-time investor. In other words, are you employed in another field? 
Do you actually have the time to do your due diligence on any trade? And that due diligence is not the newspaper from the 1934s. No. Number five, market timing is stressful. It is super stressful. (laughs) I know this from experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like a roller coaster ride. You know, every time you think it's going to go up and it goes down or vice versa, it, it creates stress. And lastly, number six, the future is unpredictable. A common argument investors have is that they want to wait for things to get better. So what we've seen is, let's say somebody sold out of the market March of 2020 because they were scared, Greg. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, when are you going to get back in? They said, well, when things get better. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You sold things low and you're going to buy them when they're higher. Yeah. That's actually yeah. contrary to what you want to do, right? That's right. Yeah. And that's a very, it's an understandable, but an emotional response to volatility. Yep. Yeah. And it makes it very difficult. So Market timing, the way I kind of look at market timing is it's kind of like stock picking, but on a more of a macro level. So rather than is now the right time to buy or sell a particular stock, a market timing talks more about is now the right time to be in or out of a particular asset class. And typically it's stocks. We've heard a lot about bonds lately, but typically it would be stocks. So market timing theory is trying to interpret or detect buy and sell signals in trading patterns and in history. And again, with regards to asset classes. When some of the decisions you make with the help of market timing can bring profits, others can cost money. When you're coming up with acting, let's say, on a series of guesses or estimates or probability assessments to use in your buying decisions and selling decisions is really what it's all about. So the aim in 2021 is the same as the aim was in 1997 when the strategy really gained a lot of prominence. And it's everyone's goal to buy near a low and to sell near a high. And so a lot of people think that that's going to make a massive difference in the end. And ultimately, a lot of people become disillusioned trying to do market timing because they figure out it's costing them money, either real value by having stuff that they own go down or missed opportunities by not being in the market when it's going up. Well, even just recently in the last year, I mean, you think about the Dow Jones, it's, what's it, around 35,000 points right now? Yeah. Somewhere around there? Yeah. Yeah. When it was at 25,000 points, everybody's like, oh, geez, the market's expensive. I don't yep. know if I want to get in now. Yeah, that's right. Well, if they didn't, they missed out on, what is that, 33% rate of return? That's right. And you and I talked a little bit about probability in one of our previous podcasts. And the markets over the last 20 years, I would say, in fact, the whole time I've been in the business, over 25 years, they've sort of defied probability a lot during those periods. They defied probability with the run-up of the bull market in tech stocks, which ended abruptly, but it went on for quite a long time. We talked about in last week's episode how the U.S. market basically had a negative return every year for the first 10 years of the millennium. And so there's a lot of things that happen that you don't expect. And it's not because they can't happen. It's just because you don't expect them because they're unlikely, but still happen. It's like the 100-year flood. So what happens is market timing can pay off sporadically And the results are largely random and successes and failures sometimes come in spurts. So the worst thing that can happen near the start of investing career is you make a bunch of successful timing decisions and that leads you to believe that you've broken the code and that you've got a talent for market timing or whatever. And what happens that can get you back into trying to future timing decisions. And in fact, when you look at it in the last 25 years, you probably only needed to time the market right three times. And it would have been awesome if you were able to time the peak of the tech market in 2000 
time, the peak of the real estate inspired stock market run up that ended in 2007 in the US and spotted the pre pandemic peak. Yeah. Now, those are the only three timing decisions that you ever needed to make. And Would have rocked it. Exactly. <laughs> so basically, but, you know. But let's just go back there for a yeah. minute. But that's all hindsight bias. Of course. Right? Because, of course, everybody says, oh, yeah, I knew that the markets were going to come back or whatever. No, you yeah. didn't. No. Otherwise, you would have invested more money in them. Exactly. Right? And at the bottom of those, obviously, it would have been a great it would have been great to get out at the top. But as you pointed out earlier, you need to make two right decisions. You also needed to get back in at the bottom. And so what are the odds that you saw the peak of the tech bubble coming in exactly March of 2000 and you knew to get back in in exactly November of 2002? The odds are very low. And so you're never going to be exactly right with those kinds of things. And in fact, you can often be quite wrong. And if you miss getting back in, then you've missed out on a whole lot of gains. Well, and we'll spare the listeners that breakdown of if you miss the best one day, five days, 10 days, 30 days yeah, of a period. Exactly. Let's just say that it creates a significant different outcome. So what's the goal of market timing? The goal of market timing is to buy low and to sell high. And there is a way to do that. And in our opinion, the way to do that is not by absolutely timing the markets, but by using your asset allocation that we talked about last time as an opportunity to sell high and buy low. And so what do we mean by that? Well, if you go through a really bad market dislocation, like we did in March of 2020 or during the global credit crisis, if you had a 60-40 standard 60% stock, 40% bond allocation, and stocks went down 50% as they did back in 2009, well, you would have been offside. Your 60-40 would look more like a 50-50, let's say, or even worse. And so you would have just rebalanced and bought 10% more stocks, buying at the low, and selling your bonds to buy those stocks, selling at a high price, and you would have accomplished the same thing, not with 100% of your portfolio, but with part of your portfolio. So unfortunately, a lot of people sit back and wait and they'll say, okay, well, when the market sells off 10%, then I'm going to start buying. And you might be waiting a long time for one of those. And so it's just a very difficult thing to do. And if you reach the point of being kind of a long-term investor who's investing using a long-term process, you can see those market setbacks as something that you just have to live with. And again, the best way to protect yourself against them is to put money into the stock market only if you can afford to leave it there for many years. Not one year. Not one year. Yeah. Because one year is not many years. One year is not long-term. I don't care who you are. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the historical results of some of the professional money managers that are in the news these days, Greg. Sure. There's a guy out there, his name's Bill Miller, currently in the news because a fund that he manages has done quite well in the last few years. Absolutely. Mr. Miller used to run the Leg Mason Value Trust Fund in the U.S., And for 15 straight years, that fund outperformed the S&P 500. There were books written about him, strategies mimicked, trying to mimic his results were created. But what happened, Greg? We know what happened. Yep. What happened was the the global credit crisis. Yeah, the global credit crisis. In 2009, the global credit crisis was at its worst. It was March 9th of 2009 was the absolute low. And in that year or during that period, Bill Miller's fund gave back all 15 years of returns. So what happened to Mr. Miller? You remember? Sure. He was fired. Yep. Like he sucked at his job. (laughs) 
right? I'm just joking, of course, but he was let go. He was rehired by another fund company to run another fund. And what happened to him that year? Do you remember? I don't. He had the worst performing record in the whole universe that right. he was part of. Right, right, So right. he was let go of that fund. But now he's back in the spotlight as saying, look, I can do this. I'm a good picker and a good market timer, and he's having some success with it. So I don't mean to be so hard on Bill Miller and his past results, but it's just evidence of the fact that here's somebody that that is their full-time job. They've been heralded as a genius at one point and then heralded it as, I don't know, villain at another yeah. point. yeah. And it's just really hard. It's really hard to stock pick and market time. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And because it's such a competitive industry and fund managers live and die by their performance relative to a benchmark. Yeah. And that's what have you done for me lately? Exactly. Yeah. Well, listen, should we wrap up this episode of stock picking and market timing? Let's do that. And I think as a means of wrap up, just the way we talked last time about asset allocation and diversification, what we're talking about here is just, it's kind of an evolution of investing because investing started with stock picking and without asset allocation, it was just stock picking and bonds were something that were largely left to institutional investors and things like that. So the market started there, started with Benjamin Graham and and fundamental analysis. And as time went on and information became more broadly available, even as long ago as 1963, Ben Graham was seeing that the kind of stuff that he did and wrote about wasn't working anymore. And that was 58 years ago already. That was 58 years ago. So that's just, it just shows the evolution. And so now as we're moving towards uh, sort of a very different way of investing, we have to start looking at investing as a process, not as a transaction. It's not just a buy or a sell, whether it's a stock or the entire asset class. It's a process. And if you can think about investing as a process, then we can avoid some of the pitfalls and risks that we've talked about and hopefully have a better investing experience. And once again, importantly, linking that back to the investor's financial goals from their plan. All back to the plan. We keep saying it over and over again. Oh man, it must get get tiring listening to us talk (laughs) about the planning. (laughs) All right, listen, thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch. And we'll be back next week with the third episode of our Back to Basics mini-series. Sounds great. All right. Thank you for listening to The Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.